0: Good morning, I'm Leslie Thatcher, 806 on this Tuesday, February 21st, 26 degrees, mostly cloudy skies. And on the phone with us from the ABC Forecast Center, meteorologist Thomas Geboy. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Leslie. Happy Tuesday. Uh, For anybody that's going to be getting out on the roads today, things are looking mostly calm right now. But like we talked about yesterday, we have one of, if not the strongest winter storm system that is going to be moving in. We're already starting to see some valley rain and mountain snow in the northern portion of the state. But for Park City, we're expecting exclusive snow. The daytime high will climb into the mid-30s. But once the cold front moves through, the temperatures will be trending downwards throughout the second half of the day. And the chance for snow really ramps up. Once we get into the second half of this morning into the early stretch of the afternoon and it's more or less a 100% chance that we're going to see snow and then during the daytime hours we could pick up three to seven inches of snow which means for the morning commute right now things are looking pretty good by the evening commute tonight that could be a completely different story winter storm morning for the Wasatch back goes into effect at two o'clock this afternoon. And will continue through Thursday morning at 5, which means this is going to be a long duration event. So we could see some healthy accumulations in the daytime hours today. And then into tonight, snow is expected to continue. The overnight low dropping to 12 degrees, and we could pick up maybe around a foot of new snow tonight alone, which means the Wednesday morning commute could be awful in Park City might be a good idea to plan ahead you're going to need to give yourself plenty of time if you have to be out on the roadways udot and the national weather service discouraging folks from traveling starting tonight through tomorrow morning things might calm down a little bit tomorrow afternoon but snow is still going to remain a likelihood so even as the system starts to move away to the east we'll see wraparound moisture a 90 percent chance for additional snow showers throughout the day on wednesday maybe an additional three to five inches of snow about a 50 50 chance for snow showers on wednesday night as the winter storm warning continues but then going into thursday and friday got more energy coming in from our west so we're not going to be able to get rid of the chance of snow the daytime highs will start to moderate a little bit we'll be in the lower 20s on wednesday and thursday then temperatures will come up into the upper 20s by friday but looking at an 80 percent chance of snow both thursday and friday And then holding on to the chance of snow more or less through this weekend. Daytime highs will be more so in the middle 30s. And then we could even see more snow going into Sunday into Monday as another storm system could be on the way. I think at this point, Saturday might be the quietest of the days. Some forecast models like that to be a little bit of a lull in between two storm systems between Thursday and Friday and then again Sunday into Monday. So the main takeaway from all this is it's relatively quiet outside right now not going to be that case once we get into the second half of the day and we're moving into a pretty active pattern that's going to be sticking around for at least the next week or so, Leslie.
0: Yeah. So what are you guys uh, calling for in terms of the Salt Lake Valley? How much snow?
1: The Salt Lake Valley, we're at this point kind of expecting between six and 12 inches of snow, Mm -hmm. but... If the bands of heavy snow set up and we kind of see the system stall, there will be potential for over a foot. And I think that we could see maybe even upwards of a foot and a half on some of the benches if the snow really pans out. So that potential is there that we could see maybe even over a foot for some spots along the Wasatch front. And which means, and for the Wasatch back, I think through from now through maybe early Thursday, we could pick up between one to two feet of snow total.
0: Okay, well, safe travels tomorrow morning as you get there right in the middle of it all.
1: I right, likewise <laughs> yeah
0: thanks and with a look in the back country on the phone with us from the abc forecast uh, center we've got nikki hi nikki
2: <laughs> morning uh uac forecast center but um oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. snow <laughs> yeah um, snow surface conditions obviously have greatly improved over the last few days um, with the new snow. and They'll just continue to improve uh, out of the wind zone before this new snow comes. You should still be able to find some soft riding. Uh, yesterday, there was multiple human-triggered avalanches reported in the backcountry. The majority of these were just uh, shallow slabs of wind-drifted snow that failed on the old snow interface. Um, over the next few days, things are gonna get pretty exciting. We've got two main things to think about. Uh, throughout the day, the primary concern is gonna be the wind drift of the snow to start. So winds were made elevated overnight. We've got a bit of soft snow and we're getting more soft snow. Um, that will continue to form fresh labs wind of wind drifted snow along all aspects at upper elevations. The second issue we wanna think about is just all this new snow. So the issue is gonna be pretty simple today. As the snowfall intensity increases, the avalanche danger is gonna increase as well. We've got this cold front moving in that's predicted to have periods of very heavy snowfall rates um, and overall really high snowfall totals. Once the snowfall begins, I expect that we'll start seeing shallow slabs of new snow in the backcountry. With the generally warm temperatures, these might be rather cohesive, but we could likely see both types of new snow avalanches. So both soft slabs and fast running sloughs The sensitivity of this new snow depends largely on the rate of snowfall. So during any periods of high snowfall rates, so two inches an hour or higher, avalanches are gonna be more likely to trigger. Um, Those periods of higher snowfall rates are possible later in the day, so after 3 p.m. But pay attention to changing weather. So if the snowfall rates come in faster, um, avalanche danger is gonna increase today we've got an overall danger rising to moderate this morning but it could spike to considerable by this afternoon during those periods of heavy snowfall pay attention to changing weather if the storm comes in sooner than anticipated the danger will rise sooner than anticipated human triggered avalanches are possible natural avalanches are unlikely but possible during those periods of heavy snowfall
0: okay Nikki thanks Taking a look at some local news now, the Federal Office for Civil Rights is investigating the Park City School District for how it handled allegations of racist student behavior at Ecker Hill Middle School. Michelle Deininger has more on that.
3: The Federal Office for Civil Rights, or OCR, served notice to the Park City School District electronically Thursday afternoon. The action stems from complaints of racist bullying at Ecker Hill Middle School. The OCR is part of the US Department of Education. It enforces federal civil rights laws prohibiting discrimination in schools. A spokesman for that office wouldn't comment on the case specifically, other than to say investigations vary in duration. In Utah, six other public school racial harassment cases are currently open. Two in Alpine School District, one in Salt Lake City, one in Nebo, one in Canyons, and one in Jordan season kane whose family is jewish filed the complaint against park city school district this month kane said her daughter who's an Eckerhill hill student experienced anti-semitic bullying in which another student got in her face saying kkk she said her daughter also witnessed friends being called racial slurs several times email exchanges between kane and ecker hill principal amy jenkins on the subject date back to last fall Jenkins initially said she'd alert the school community about the incidents, then later directed Kane to Carolyn Sinan. Sinan is director of student services for the district. Kane explained that she told Sinan in December why she thought more needed to be done. I said, my goal is to provide education and awareness to protect our youth against bullying and suicide. And I said, more and more incidences are occurring So let's provide education and awareness to prevent further incidences from happening and further damage. She said, you're right. Something more specific does need to be sent out and I am going to do it. In December, Jenkins sent an email about kindness with descriptions of how some students were treating school property. It didn't touch on discrimination, which dismayed Kane and other parents. I repeatedly asked, why is it okay that you give specific examples of damage done to computers, but you will not give specific examples of damage done to students? Kane said "Signin told her school code prevented the district from describing discrimination specifically. Kane said she asked to read that code and Signin directed her to another administrator who didn't provide it. Then the district reversed course. Jenkins sent an email to Eckerhill families on February 8th with specific descriptions of racist language being used. Kane also said her daughter asked to start a school club for kids experiencing bullying, and district officials eventually told her that wasn't allowed due to rules governing student clubs. The Park City School District will not comment on the investigation, according to Lori Pierce, whose executive assistant to school superintendent Jill Gilday. Another parent, who asked that her name not be used in this report, described her experience as a mother of two black children in the district. She said a white student targeted her family for years before being expelled last year for calling her son racial slurs. That student returned to school this year, as is allowed under state law, and was expelled again after more racist behavior. The parent said now her daughter is experiencing the same thing from different students. The parent said she's emailed and spoken with district officials for over a year about slurs and bullying. She said she'd like to see the subject treated as a higher priority with frank communication and stiffer penalties. Barry Nanco and Rothschild is a parent of two students in the district, one former and one current. She described her family's and friends instances of discrimination as too numerous to count. Rothschild said she believes the district has missed opportunities to educate families and employees about racial discrimination. I have seen as a pattern across years and years and years now, every incident has been treated like a one-off, no matter what it is. Rothschild highlighted that it has been exactly a year since a Jewish high school teacher found a swastika drawn in his classroom at Park City High School, and the district hasn't yet added educational curriculum or teacher training on identifying and handling racist language and behavior. If we keep treating things like they only happen the one time, and then we're going to just extinguish the fire, you're actually adding fuel to it. Because if you don't talk about things, they keep happening. The OCR declined to comment on how long the Park City School District investigation might take. Some ongoing investigations in Utah have been open for well over a year. Michelle Deininger, KPCW News.
0: Well, the Summit County Council in for a long day tomorrow. Work session starts at 1245, and then a two-hour work session regarding possible amendments to the Park City Tech Center development agreement starts at four. In the studio with a preview, I have Summit County Manager Shane Scott. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Leslie. Thanks for
0: having me. Yeah, so you've got, what, all of two weeks under your belt? How's it going?
4: Yeah, today's uh, week two. It's going great. It, uh it was. It, it's been interesting to be be thrown into a a new position uh, in the middle of the legislative session, but uh, it's been great. Really, felt uh, very welcome by by everyone I've met, and it's been wonderful to meet meet some of the employees and, and work with the council so far.
0: Yeah, um, have you found a place to live, or are you still commuting? Uh, still commuting. Uh, the council gave me until the
4: summer to to find a place, but I'd really like to get up here as soon as possible. I didn't anticipate the uh, storm of the century this week uh, after uh, accepting the job, but. Uh, I'm, I'm just really excited to get up here and, and, uh, and not have to commute anymore.
0: Yeah, um, you got somebody looking for you? Is that, you know? I,
4: I've just been trying to do that in my spare time. I have made some calls over the weekend and I'm actually looking at a place on uh, on this coming weekend as well. So
0: yeah, you think you're gonna stay in kind of North Summit is that? I think uh, I
4: would. I'd like, I'd like to probably be close to the office and, and maybe on that on that uh, eastern part of the part of the county.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let's kind of um, move over to last week's news from the state legislature, basically sticking it to Summit County over the Dakota Pacific development. Um, doesn't seem like the nicest welcome Biff, for you. But can you can you talk at all about what the county's options are going forward?
4: Well, um, th- I can talk in generalities as I as I can. Uh, the I think the county has uh, the option, really, uh, hopefully, just one option, and that's to uh, continue to serve as the land use authority for for this and all the projects that take place in our jurisdiction. And I think as we move forward, we'll. I think that's what this four o'clock uh, work session on on Wednesday is all about. It's about uh, continuing to evaluate this proposal as it's been presented to us, and to, to do so uh, with you know, fidelity, honesty, and in and, and, uh, transparency.
0: Yeah, um, I was going to ask, I mean, do you even have anything to discuss at 4 o'clock in the afternoon? Ooh. I mean, it sounds like it's a done deal.
4: Well, I, th- I think that we do. And um, there's there's a lot of moving parts. And, and when you have a legislation like SB 84 that did pass, I think it does uh, lend itself to having some discussions about what does this mean for us. But I think at this point, we're just not sure. And uh, there's probably some people that believe that that has taken that decision out of our hands. And there's some people that believe that uh, it, it doesn't do much at all. So I think uh, as we, Continue to focus as a county and as an organization on what we can do to, to, um, to properly vet out this this proposal. I think that's where, where our focus should be.
0: So, did the county even have any time to get a hold of our, our state lawmakers and contact them before this bill was passed?
4: Well, uh, I think in the way that it it did, it was one bill. It was a House bill at, at the beginning, and then it was substituted uh, in in short order. And I think between those two um, two bills, we didn't have a lot of time. The bill, the Senate Bill 84, passed in the House. I think it was 71 to zero. So uh, I think there are some folks that would have liked to know more about it before they voted for it. But
0: uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the county's been tracking the legislature closely I, I mean, I guess and it's like we're trying to understand how does something like this happen without even the opportunity to make a case for why it shouldn't happen.
4: Right, and that's, I guess that is the, the legislative process too because it was HB 446 and we had spoken with uh, many of our uh, elected officials down there in the legislature about that bill. And of course we've known this bill was on the, on, the, uh, on the docket since the beginning of the session. So it's always been out there, it just hadn't dropped yet. So once it did, it moved very quickly and I think we uh, didn't have a lot of chance to to, uh, to address it. It didn't go to any committee of, of any sort. So it, it, it passed within minutes betw- uh, between the substitute and, and the passing in the
0: house. Yeah, um, and do we understand why the bill was needed? I mean, was it specifically targeted against Summit County or was it there actually th- that the bill needed to fix something. Well, as part of the bill,
4: uh, the the uh, SB 84 before it was substituted in with 446, it, it addressed some of the HTRZ uh, changes, some subtle changes, and I don't even think that some of those changes weren't weren't uh, weren't good changes. Uh, I think with most bills, there are good and bad parts of it, and so it makes it hard for people to. Uh, come out against a bill when they there are some provisions that they, they agree with, so in this case the HGRZ might be a great tool for not only Summit County but other other jurisdictions in Utah to use, and we're looking at that closely, and and we, we we'd like to have that as a as a as a quiver in our in our uh, an arrow in our quiver, so that's something that we're looking at. This bill does change that a little bit, but. Um, but it also did some some harmful things too. So it's, it's a, a challenging thing when that happens.
0: Yeah, reading through the staff report, it says that the bill disqualifies Summit County's moderate income housing plan, meaning that the county is no longer eligible for what are called TIF dollars, the transportation and transit infrastructure money. So does that mean that the state can renege on the $30 million that it awarded Summit County for the bus rapid transit? in last year's session there on 224?
4: That, that's certainly the concern. And uh, I think w- depending on who you ask, the answer may be yes and it may be no. Uh, I think we're on pretty pretty solid ground that, that uh, a lot of that uh, didn't take place in a... In, um, open and transparent manner, and that we have a lot of good uh, arguments about that. Uh, of course, we don't want to affect High Valley Transit. That's a, a, it's a gold jewel up here. It works so well. The legislature knows that. We have some opportunities to speak with some of the House leadership and Senate leadership over the next uh, couple of weeks before the session ends. And that's what one thing we're going to mention is, is don't harm um, a very valuable service to our community uh, it, just because of a, a, a development gone awry.
0: Yeah. So explain, I mean, did the county include the HTRZ and the moderate income housing plan that it filed last year?
4: Yes. It's my understanding. we, We did include it. We didn't do it it wasn't done, but it was included as a possibility. So a lot of that modern income housing plan is, what can we do now and what can we do in the future to to uh, address uh, housing affordability? And we did have the HTRZ as a possibility and, and had, had put that in our modern income housing plan. And we had received, uh, feedback from Workforce Services, which is the uh, jurisdiction that does address those moderate income housing plans, that we were in compliance. So we felt good about what we submitted. I think the deadline was October 1st of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Jones had worked very hard on, on putting that plan together, and, and we were very pleased with what we had put together. I think to, retroact- to, to say that our plan was Approved and then re- retroactively say it wasn't is, is a real real challenging situation for us and something that we're not going to stand stand for
0: Okay, and that's where I guess I'm confused because I thought that that had been done But what the state legislature is saying or at least some lawmakers are saying no, it wasn't done
4: uh, uh, Leslie, I, 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 I can I'm confused too. <clears throat> I don't understand how that can happen and and I apologize to address your other point There may be other jurisdictions in in the state that are affected by Senate Bill 84 and a general provision, but there is something in there specifically for Summit County. It it talks about a a county of the third class with that with a transit district in a certain location and it's just it doesn't say the word summit county but it uh, it's it's very clear what's what's going on
0: yeah and certainly as we know and probably you're finding out pretty quickly when we talk about moderate income housing especially in the snyderville basin um i think most places in the state that would be expensive housing no I i mean so so what how is how does moderate yes yeah,
4: so I, I, I I can't remember exactly the the de- definition it takes your um, your your incomes and 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 you're right it's very different here I, I don't know if modern income housing is even in in the it's, it's probably in the millions still here so talking about what's really affordable and what is moderate or obviously two different uh, two different definitions
0: yeah and I guess that's what I'm wondering is like is da- Dakota Pacific are they really proposing moderate income housing right, um.
4: right. and and I and I and I know it's it's diverse housing, and and they there were some uh, deed restricted affordable units as part of their proposal, which is which is a a good step. I mean, that's that's really what as as a new person to this county, as a new person to this organization, what's really been sad and frustrating to me is I see a council here dedicated, dedicated to workforce housing, dedicated to truly affordable housing, not just diverse housing, uh, and to to you know, I, I came from a from a from a city down on the, along the Wasatch Front where we have down there we had mostly half acre lots and single family residential and we were very wary to to, uh, to uh, put uh, diverse housing in in that city and that's actually where the speaker of the house lives and it's a wonderful community it's great but but I see a council uh, county council up here that is dedicated to workforce housing and to to being part of the solution.
0: Any other bills that we should be aware of so residents can actually lobby their representatives? Yeah,
4: you know, is, I, <laughs> is, is there anything else going on at all besides this? Um, I, there are, have been a few bills. In fact, at 10 o'clock, we have a, a regular meeting. We meet uh, weekly just to talk about some of the bills. We've had some some that have come out about sustainability, some about net metering that affected us that we've been able to, for the most part, ward off. But but this has been really the... the uh, canary in the coal mine.
0: All right, back on the agenda after a very long wait, another discussion regarding a cemetery in the Snyderville Basin. We set up a cemetery district like 10 years ago, but it sounds like there's a lot more work to do. I think so and and I don't know a, a
4: lot about the cemetery uh, initiative, but i I do know that finding a space for that is uh, is, is key and we have some uh, what, what's really wonderful about Summit County to me is we have residents that really get involved and I think when you have a resident that takes that initiative and, and works with the with the county staff we can we can really do some amazing things. Cemeteries are interesting there. There, are uh, pe- the way people are, are choosing to be interned these days is, is really changing with uh, with the times. And, and so the, uh, a cemetery would, um, my understanding is that Summit County residents aren't allowed to be buried in the Park City Cemetery. And so that's probably the, the main issue, but uh, it's an interesting project. and We'll look forward to, to hearing more about it.
0: All right, so uh, looking through the staff report, we need to adopt a governing ordinance, appointing appoint a board of trustees, find a location, as you mentioned, and, um, also find out how we operate and maintain a cemetery Um, what i think i read is that it would require a property tax increase but voters would have to approve that that's not something the county could just do on its own as the basic operation of the county
4: um I, I actually am not sure about that i I don't know uh, about the the reason why that might be the case uh, but uh, I, I obviously it would it cost a, a a significant increase in, in budget yeah. funds and one way or the other
0: I know that uh, ten years ago we looked at where a cemetery might go and there is open space just to the south there of, of Dakota Pacific it was found that it was too rocky, I think at the time, but maybe a a good statement to make if Dakota Pacific does move (laughs) forward. Um, Let's see, the council held a strategic planning retreat last month and staffs come up with a framework Called community indicators and benchmarks for the overall approach to the county's annual work plan, plan rather than just listing um, separate strategic objectives. Um, what's next with this? Do we need to hold another planning session? Or
4: I, I, I don't think we do on this. On this, if you look, through, uh, I think some of that is is up for approval as well. And uh, this has been uh, Jenny Young's um, uh, effort, and she's done a wonderful job in, in, in really trying to get the council to give. To prioritize, what are their needs, and what is the staff able to do in a yearly basis with with uh, with those with that vision, with those needs, and of course, we all have finite time, uh, resources. So, um, as as things change, when we have something else the council wants to do we can go back to this plan and we can reevaluate it and say what 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 have we moving down on the list and what can we move back up on the list and i think it's a great way to go about things again i'm i'm new to this um the 20th of january was our was our uh, strategic retreat and that was the first day I really got to be there and be be there with the staff and, and the council, I hadn't even started yet. But I but I took a day off and was able to come up and and be part of that at the Canvas
0: Library. Oh, okay. So you were part of that. I was. We don't need to hold another one just so you can kind of understand some right. of the issues. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Anything else you want to mention? Uh,
4: I don't think so. I, I, again, it's a wonderful wonderful time to be up here. I I think. February is an uh, interesting time to get this much snow. With uh, Down in, uh, I originally am from St. George and I used to break out the lawn mower in February and start mowing the lawn. It's the parade of homes down there in a very busy uh, busy time, but uh, we're, we're experiencing something very different this year and it's been uh, exciting. We're, we're grateful for the, for the moisture.
0: Okay, all right, appreciate your time. Thank you, Thank Shane. you, Leslie. Shane Scott is Summit County Manager. Well, the Utah legislature is uh, finishing the final few weeks of its 45-day session. On the phone with an update, I have KUER political reporter, Sage Miller. Good morning, Sage. Good morning, Leslie. Let's start with uh, abortion. A bill titled abortion changes passed the House uh, last week. Tell us what this is going to do.
5: Yeah, so this is where the legislature really kind of shifted from being pretty low key to going right in the face of abortion, these controversial controversial bills again. So HB 467 is sponsored by uh, Carrie Ann Lizenby, and it passed out of the House and is on to the Senate, and it act the language for the bill actually dropped on Valentine's Day, and the next day it was scheduled for a hearing. So they were very, very rapid. And essentially, the highlights of what this bill does is, first and foremost, it would seize all operation of abortion clinics. Come the beginning of January of 2024. It also would af- allow uh, abortions to only be performed in a hospital setting or state approved clinics. Um, the hospital, the definition of a hospital for this bill is very, very broad. And that was essentially Carrie Ann Lizenby's um, determinant or her argument against people saying that uh, hospital abortions are incredibly cost prohibitive um, and can be very dangerous in some settings. So she was trying to strike a nice balance there. But additionally, it makes a clarification when it comes to who is allowed to not file a police report in terms of sexual assault if they want to obtain an abortion. So prior to the original language, I mean, the original language in the bill said that 12-year-olds and under were allowed to get an abortion and not report it in terms of sexual assault or or incest. It was just presumed that they were assaulted, Um, so therefore they could obtain this procedure. They have lifted that age to everybody under 14 can go through this process without um, having to report it to police. But anybody over the age of 14 must go to the police, report their incest or assault in order to obtain an abortion. Um, And that's because in the state of Utah, 14 is the age of consent. So what exactly this means is, I'm assuming it might go through a little bit of changes when it heads to the House. Um, We've seen legislation that passed, like the Utah abortion trigger law, this is really kind of just codifying a lot of the language and specifying um, what doctors can, what procedures they can, uh, like in in what scenarios are they allowed to perform an abortion. Um, And so we'll see that may make it through. There has been some obvious pushback, mostly from Democrats and from places like Planned Parenthood. Exactly what does this mean for the eight clinics that exist in Utah that are owned by Planned Parenthood? However, only three are licensed to do surgical or chemical abortions in the state so what does it mean for their license there's a lot of questions up in the air Planned Parenthood said they are unsure if they're going to litigate because of what the, the scope of abortion access means because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade um, and the Dobbs decision from the Supreme Court in June. So it's really kind of up in the air and we'll see how it moves throughout the rest of the legislature. But as you said, we're wrapping up. They got about nine business days left. And so there's a lot they gotta cram in those nine days.
0: All right, let's move on to Kara Berkland's bill, House Bill 297 to bolster resources for sexual violence victims. Tell us what this did.
5: Yeah, so this is very this is a very interesting one to me because it kind of does some very progressive things, but then also codifies some of the abortion language that we were just talking about, i.e. victims having to report to police if they want to obtain this procedure. Kira Berkland, who is a Republican, would argue that's already statute way before she was a lawmaker. This is something that she's just adding into the bill because she kind of has to. It's already been scribed in law. However, what this bill does for victims is that it gives more resources to uh, victim advocates and those organizations. It also provides more training for police officers when it comes to sexual violence calls that they must report on and it also kind of gives them more data, wants them to get more data so they know what they're kind of walking into when it comes to these sexual violence um, scenarios. It also would provide emergency contraception to uh, victims of sexual violence if they believe that they were they were going to be pregnant and they wanted to intersect that before they had to go report it to the police. So it requires them to have access to this emergency contraception. And it also details kind of like how police have to respond to these kinds of situations. So that passed through the house. It didn't have any democratic support. And that's primarily because of the abortion uh, language in, in, included in the bill. Um, but that should be making its way through the house. And there has been also some pushback, including Kara Berkland's sister who is who spoke out against the bill as well and she just says that she did not believe that this actually represents or supports victims so something I'm kind of curious about moving forward is how are victim advocates like the rape recovery center um, or Utah domestic violence coalition how are they responding to this legislation
0: all right uh let's see moving on taxes because we had heard this was going to be the year of the tax cut and it sounds like we've got one proposed
5: Yes, we have a few things that are dealing with taxes. So first and foremost, in in Governor Cox's budget proposal for the fiscal year, he wanted a billion dollar tax cut, billion with a B. The legislature came back and we're like, we'll give you four hundred million in tax cuts. And where we're going to see a lot of that relief is actually in the income tax rate. Rate. They said that they're going to, they're proposing to slash the income tax rate by a tenth of a percentage, which seems very, very small. Um, In the grand scheme of things, a lot of Utahns may not see that bulk of money back in their pocket, you would see about $200 in savings if you're a family of four making about 80K a year. Um, And you're supposed to, they said that there would be a 22% um, tax cut for low income families. Um, There's been some reports that say on average, a Utah would see about $17 extra in their pocket a month, but they've also pitched to expand social security tax credits for those making up to $75,000 a year. And we also see, a slash in our gasoline tax by about two cents. Um, however, I think where the bulk of the debate that is most fascinating is that the Utah legislature has signaled that they are open to getting rid of the sales tax on food, which is something that primarily uh, lawmakers on the west side of the Salt Valley have been pushing for very hard. There's been some kind of debacles with it. I believe in 2019, the Utah legislature tried to hack, I mean, hike the sales tax. And uh, there was a referendum a bunch of people got on board and were like, we don't want to pay more on more sales tax on food. And they have been hesitant to reduce it or do away with it because it is a steady revenue stream and they can use that money uh, for other services that can't be used through income tax. Um, But there's a negotiation on the table. In order for the Utah legislature to do away with the food sales tax, they want a they want to change the Utah constitution to allow them to expand how they can use federal, I mean, how they can use the state income tax. Right now, the Utah constitution says, we can only pay for, we can only use income tax for higher and public education and a few other services. And that's in the constitution. So what would need to happen is if the legislature passes this constitutional amendment, it would head to the voters ballot in 2024 and voters would have the final say if they want to remove the sales food tax in return for uh getting allowing the legislature to do as they please with this income tax
0: yeah it's so interesting a lot of these if then kind of bills you know it's like if we give teachers a raise then we get to have school vouchers if we you know cut the you know food tax then we get you know to say where the money this is very interesting they're kind of their just their demands that they're making.
5: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting game of politics. And you always hear this, right, that there is negotiations in place. They usually want a quid pro quo. And this is a great example of that being true. And I heard some Republican lawmakers being like, Utah is one of the only states that has these restrictions on how we can spend income tax. A lot of other states don't have that. And so now this, gives the choice to the voters if they of what they would rather do keep that pot of money for education stable as it is or remove the sales food tax um so i mean it's it's going to be an interesting 2024 ballot initiative if it gets that far
0: yeah um let's move on at kind of a bill out of the left field uh magic mushrooms a bill would require uh, a pilot program to study the municipal benefits of uh edible mushrooms tell us about this
5: Yes. So this is backed by Luis Escamilla, a Democrat senator. And it essentially, as you said, would create a f- pilot program where about 5,000 Utahs could participate in order to study the medicinal benefits of psilocybin or hallucinogenic magic mushrooms. And this is something that other states like Oregon have completely decriminalized and are allowing to happen. And other cities like Denver have um, loosened restrictions around magic mushrooms in order to understand the psychological benefits of using such a drug. Um, and so, yeah, it would create that pilot program. It's right now in rules committee. It's not expected to go very far. Um, Governor Spencer Cox came out at his monthly news conference last week and said that Utah's just not there. There's not enough studies. There's not enough impact on what this means physically and mentally for a patient. And he doesn't think that he quote, we should be experimenting on 5,000 Utahns to understand what this means. And so he says, you know, He'd rather it not happen, um, and would rather wait for FDA approval of the of the program and of the the medical use before he before he signs off on it. Um, he said, "We got there with medical marijuana, so there's no reason why we can't get there with magic mushrooms. Just not today, not this year."
0: All right, uh, moving on to elections. Senate Bill 189, sponsored by Mike Kennedy, would allow county clerks to decide if they wanted to allow people to vote by mail. This is interesting because it was the state legislature, I believe, years ago that decided they wanted mail-in
5: ballots, so. Yeah. So Utah is actually one of the leading states when it comes to mail-in voting, we rolled this out a lot sooner than other states. And so all of this like kerfuffle you saw during the 2020 election when we were voting during the COVID pandemic, we didn't suffer from a lot of the struggles that other states fa- faced because we we already had a pretty good repertoire when it came to mail-in voting. But as you know, the rhetoric around the stability or the the security of these mail-in elections have become a lot in question. Utah Utah has done a lot to try and combat that. But this bill would essentially give it up to the, the county clerks to decide if they want to run mail-in voting. Um, we saw some issues in rural uh, in rural Utah this past election with them not getting their ballots in on time um, from the printer in Vegas, and so that kind of also caused a kerfuffle. But there is some county clerks like in Salt Lake County, they're going to continue mail-in voting, but it is questionable for other counties like Utah County where they have a county clerk that's a little bit more skeptical about mail-in voting. I. I'm very curious if this bill is going to gain any traction whatsoever, um, and we haven't really seen a lot of election-related election-related bills this year. But that bill from Mike, Mike Kennedy, who is also the bill sponsor behind SB16, which banned gender-affirming care for transgender youth, um, is in Rules Committee, so that could be up today, it could be up tomorrow, but they got nine days to figure it out.
0: Okay. Also, House Bill 393, sponsored by Jordan Tush would change how candidates qualify for a primary election tell us about this
5: yes yeah, so this is a bill that has been resurrected a few times and usually dies but this would change the way that uh, a, a, a candidate can make it onto the primary ballot so right now we're on a convention system delegates um, of that party decide who they want to be their number one leader so what this bill essentially says that if delegates If if a candidate can get 70% of the delegate vote at a convention, they head straight to the general election ballot. They get to skip the primary. Essentially what this does is omits you if you got on the ballot via signature gathering. And we saw this for um, about two, federal seats. Uh, Mitt Romney got on the ballot because he was able to signature gather. And it's actually been a very common road for John Curtis as well. So this is another way for what skeptics say or critics say, this is another way for just a very small minority of those delegates to decide who their representative, who their leader is going to be for the rest of the state, while very much so stifling the voice of Utah voters. And so we've We know that it's still house right now. I mean, I mean, it's in the, it's in the Rules Committee. It's in, in a, going its going to committee. That's what I meant to say. And we have heard some speculation from some lawmakers that they're just not really down with this bill and think that it might cause more harm than good. Uh, but it is something that the Utah GOP has been pushing for for a minute. So I'm sure this one's going to be a very lively debate, Leslie.
0: Yeah, finally, um, and I know you don't know a whole lot about it, but Senate Bill 84 is what the talk of the town here in, in Summit County. I mean, basically what it did was force the approval of the uh, Dakota Pacific development application that already has a development agreement without going through local planning channels. Um, I, I guess, are there any examples of this happening anywhere else in the state? Because it seems like it's like the second time the legislature has had its way on Summit County land use decisions.
5: Yeah, so this one was actually very interesting to me when you sent it to me. I started Googling it, started looking it up. And it does seem to signal a shift about what Utah is doing when it comes to zoning laws. And there does seem to be kind of a little bit of a disconnect. The development of HTRZs is something that the majority of GOP have painted as a positive step towards affordable housing, something that so Summit County is no stranger to and neither is Salt Lake County where I live. And so a lot of people in the urban areas, specifically the lawmakers here are big, big fan of it. But I did look at that language that was added last minute um, by Representative Casey Snyder, and it does seem very targeted. Um, and so what I am like kind of envisioning or seeing kind of heading down the pipeline is the governor signaled at his press at his news conference last week, that he is kind of supportive of the state government stepping in and building more zoning laws and creating more zoning laws in order to increase housing supply. Because there is that argument, the more supply you have, it'll drive costs down. And so he applauded California for essentially stripping zoning rights away from local governments and placing it in the hands of the state legislature. And this may be a first step of them doing that. I do know that um, Representative uh, Senator Winderton said that he had concerns over the government overstepping and doesn't want them to intervene with local authority when it comes to zoning because this is something that just historically hasn't been done in the state. Um, And nobody really had an answer to that. Uh, They didn't say this isn't isn't going to happen anymore. This is just a case in order to build more housing like towards um, uh, transit zones and to make it more affordable. But the other aspect to this, Leslie, is there is this question of, will these actually create affordable housing, especially in the areas that are most needed? And Utah doesn't have... Any law against that, they have they have incentives. They say, "Hey, developer, if you make some low income apartments, we'll help subsidize that." Uh, However, there's no limit. You know, um, the as long as the rent is cheaper than the market rent, that's considered affordable housing. So it's going to be definitely a question to see if that actually follows through. Um, And Nate Bluen, who is a Democrat from Salt Lake County, said that there was some concerns with Summit County um, and wants to know if this will actually provide affordable housing. Um, And so that goes back to the very same question, but Nate Bluen ended up voting yes for it because to a lot of other urban lawmakers and a lot of other urban cities, this seems like a pretty good idea.
0: Okay, appreciate uh, you looking into that for us. Sage, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Sage Miller again with KUER. Well, the independent film, The Year of the Dog will be screened in Heber City next month as a fundraiser for Paws for Life Utah. On the phone to tell us a little bit more about this, I have filmmaker Rob Graywell, good morning.
6: Hey, good morning, good morning.
0: Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Rob. Are you are a local or a Utahan Or
6: I, I'm actually from Montana, so my mom's family's uh, been there, I think, going back to the 1870s, 1880s. Um, so we shot and made the film actually in, in Montana, just north of Yellowstone.
0: Okay, so what about the film, The Year of the Dog? What's it about?
6: Uh, so it's about a man who is struggling to find sobriety Um, so that he can see his mom before she passes away. And along his journey, he meets a stray dog who has uh, pretty special athletic talents, and they form a relationship, a really close bond. And then the story follows uh, my character, Matt's journey to uh, see his mom in hospice before she passes away and, and his struggle to stay sober along the way.
0: All right. It sounds a little bit depressing, but I'm thinking that there's probably some shining lights in there.
6: (laughs) Very fair question. Um, Well, you know, the the subject matter is heavy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's pulling from some of my own experiences growing growing up around people who did struggle with addiction. um, But it is an uplifting story. And, you know, the dog is a real-life rescue dog um named caleb and he ensures that the movie has a you know, elements in it that are fun and have kind of universal appeal even if some of the subject matter is heavy
0: so not only did you write and co-direct the film but you do star in it huh
6: yeah i decided i decided to take a shot at it you know um no I, I i do all of those roles and um you know i think with any kind of small independent film um, like this, you really rely on a team, and so everybody um, kind of wears multiple hats. And so I was just no different in that case.
0: Yeah. Um, and I heard just yesterday that the original date for this film to be screened was set for February 24th. It's been pushed back. At this point, do we have a date in March?
6: We were tentatively slated for march 3rd um in heber city but we may we we found out that we're going to also be opening at uh megaplex 18 in thanksgiving point and uh, when that happens we'd be donating a portion of those proceeds um to pause for life
0: okay so um how tell me how how did you hook up with pause for life to make this happen
6: Well, so because Caleb is a, is a rescue in real life, we realized that there was a really nice opportunity to bring awareness to rescue animals generally because he was passed between homes um, because they kept saying that he was too much dog and he was too energetic. And, you know, he was, you know, Siberian Huskies are very high energy and those characteristics are, they read beautifully on camera. And so the theme, the, the theme of the movie is about connection and kind of feeling seen when we're going through difficult circumstances. And it felt entirely appropriate that, you know, this rescue dog had kind of been looked over and we wanted to bring awareness to rescue animals generally. So we're opening in about hundred communities across the country and we're partnering with animal shelters in each community to donate a portion of the proceeds um, to help support rescue animals and help support adoptions of them. And so we reached out to Pause for Life. We we looked at a few, and we partnered with actually a few now in in Utah. Um, but we reached out to Pause, Pause for Life, and they were wonderful, and it just seemed like a, a great fit.
0: Okay, so um, you'd mentioned Megaplex, and then still to be determined whether or not it's got a, a local screening then.
6: Yeah, I think I, we're still slated for a local screening. The only, the only catch is, you know, uh, Ant-Man, Quantumania came out. It did you know, quite well at the box office. And um, I think, you know, sometimes understandably, you know, films can get kind of pushed back or, or bumped depending on performance of, of the other films. So it'll just, it, it, it'll just kind of depend on what happens early next week, whether or not we play March 3rd or March 10th. But we're still, we're still planned and hopeful for that.
0: Okay, well, then we'll make sure to, to get that word out then when that date has been determined. Anything else you want to um, tell us about? I mean, I guess just tickets then would be available right at the box office or would there be a kind of a pre, you know, I mean, have to order online first?
6: They, they will be, so with Megaplex, they should be available this week and then um, in Hero City, they should be also available online. Mm-hmm. Um, I will, we'll be posting about it. Um, as soon as tickets go, go live for, for both locations. Um, yeah, and I just it's just such a wonderful opportunity to be able to screen, you know, in, in Utah. And we just feel immensely grateful. Um, so I just want to say thank you for, for the opportunity.
0: Okay. Well, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you.
6: Okay, yours too. Thanks.
0: Yep. It's again filmmaker Rob Grabo with the film The Year of the Dog. Well, Park City Mountain told some part-time workers that they're no longer needed this season, but then the resort backtracked saying that that message was a mistake. KBCW's Park Malatesta explains.
5: Park
7: City Mountain Flex employees were told this weekend that a slow season and new budgetary restraints mean they're no longer needed at the resort. KPCW received a copy of the message a manager at Legacy Lodge sent to part-time employees who work one to two days per week with adjusting hours. Many are locals who have worked several years at Park City Mountain and several told KPCW they enjoyed the benefits the resort offers, which include a free season pass and a 40% discount at Vail Resort's owned retail stores. The message from the manager also said that workers may still be needed near the end of the season. Park City Mountain spokeswoman Sarah Huey said the message was sent by mistake and is inaccurate. She said they will send a correction to the employees who received it and invite them to pick up work shifts. She called Flex Employment a mutually beneficial arrangement that provides benefits to workers while helping the resort reach proper staffing levels during busy times. In addition to Flex Workers, the resort also employs workers on J-1 visas who travel from foreign countries to work for a few months. Those working under a J-1 typically start working in December and leave the area in mid-March in order to travel before their visas expire. Huey confirmed that in some departments, J-1 visa workers are able to leave the resort earlier than they originally planned if they would like to, but it is completely voluntary. She emphasized that the resort's staffing needs vary throughout any season, and they adjust employee hours based on those needs. Parking reservations at Mountain Village maxed out Saturday and Monday during the normally busy President's Day weekend, but not on Sunday. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News.